Lit Service is brought to you by Writer's Clearinghouse. Writer's Clearinghouse empowers authors and agents by providing low-cost, professional evaluations of entire manuscripts that tell you exactly where your manuscript stands and what you can do to improve it. To learn more, visit www.writersch.com. Listeners of Lit Service will receive 20% off an evaluation by using the code LITSERVICE20 at purchase. Now here's the show. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Lit Service, where we are fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice. My name is Caitlin, and if I were built of something, it would probably be glass. Because I'm very breakable, apparently. I don't know. I just came up with that in a moment. Mm, okay. I'm Cameron Harris, and if I were made of something, it would be bats. Specifically bats in a <laughs> That is exactly what I expected. <laughs> I know. I think of not true to form. I'm Kristen, and if I were made out of something, I'd be built out of driftwood and sea glass. Oh, okay. <laughs> and we didn't actually tell you this before we started, but would you say, my name is Lisa, and you can either introduce yourself as made of something other than normal human whatever, or you can just introduce yourself normal. My name is Lisa Mangum. By day, I am managing editor of Shadow Mountain. By night, I am a writer of fiction. And if I was built of something right now, it would be my everlasting obsession with Supernatural. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I've attended Lisa's classes, and I just love that that's just a theme throughout everything. (laughs) So as you may have noticed, we have Lisa here. As our guest, as she said, she is an editor at Shadow Mountain Publishing by day and an author by night. She's the author of four nationally best-selling books, The Hourglass Door Trilogy and After Hello. She also, on brand here, wrote a craft book that is based on the show Supernatural, and it's super cool. It's great to have you here, Lisa. Thank you. It's great to be here. Do you want to tell us anything about your books? The Hourglass Door Trilogy is a young adult time travel romance. Super fun to write. And After Hello is a contemporary YA standalone novel that takes place in 24 hours, which was also a lot of fun to write. And then just this last year, I wrote, accidentally, wrote a thousand pages of writing advice and analysis of the TV show Supernatural. And I'm kind of amazed that it turned out and people like it. And it was a lot of fun, a lot of fun to do. I love that you did that on accident. (laughs) (laughs) I originally just planned to do like, here's a quick theme of the episode and one thing that I like. And then pretty soon I kept talking about it and pointing things out and oh, here's some foreshadowing and here's this great thing that's a scene in sequel structure and here's some great character development. And then pretty soon I was writing three or 4,000 words per episode and (laughs) the two volume set goes through the 300, the first 300 episodes of Supernatural. And then I'll finish it up with the rest of season 14 and season 15 when it starts up again this fall for the complete set. That is intense. Okay, so for this episode, we're talking about physical metaphors, a.k.a. the Horcrux principle, according to Kristen. Yes. Um, So things, physical things in books or in media, I suppose, that represent themes, character development, or state of mind consistently throughout the project, whatever it is. 
So, Kristen, do you want to explain what the Horcrux principle is based on Horcruxes? Yes, I will explain it based on Horcruxes, and then I hope Lisa will expound on things that are a little bit less explicit than Horcruxes. <laughs> so, spoiler alert for anybody who has not read Harry Potter, things are about to get real spoilery. <laughs> so, just turn it off the couch and just stop. <laughs> Dumbledore dies, by the way. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> no, so, so Voldemort, obviously, we find out in, eventually that Voldemort. Voldemort has split his soul and put pieces of it in several different objects and or beings, including Harry himself. Spoilers. I told you there'd be spoilers. I was serious about this it. This is the last book we were talking about. Yes. So. yes. In theory, this is supposed to keep Voldemort immortal. But in reality, it lets us as readers get a really good look at Voldemort's emotional state and what's going on in his life. Because if something weird is happening with one of his horcruxes, aka Harry, we know something is happening weird with Voldemort. So the whole concept of the horcrux principle is... If you have an exterior object that reflects an interior state or a theme to the novel, you have a Horcrux principle in your book. Mm-hmm. So that one's very much on the nose. That's it's explicit. Why, yeah. yeah. So Lisa has a really good example that she shared in a class I took recently from her. That's from Supernatural. That is a slightly less explicit version of the Horcrux principle. Would you like to share it? <laughs> talk about Supernatural, I would love to. (laughs) Something that I started to notice, I didn't actually pick up on it, this particular example, the first time I went through the series. It was only maybe the second or third time I'd been through the series that I really started to pay attention to how they treated Dean's relationship with his car. So Dean Winchester is the elder of the two Winchester brothers, and they drive around middle America in this 1967 black Chevy Impala. That was their dad's, and they're hunting monsters, and ghosts and all of those kinds of things. And I realized that Dean's emotional state, his internal growth and character development was often reflected in what happened to the car. For example, at the very end of season one, spoiler alert, Sam and Dean and their father are in the Impala and they get into a really bad car accident and the car is crushed and they're all injured and they're all wounded and the season ends and you don't even know if anybody's still alive. At the beginning of season two, Dean has set up, he has set out to rebuild the car. That is his goal. He's like, I can't do anything else. Dad is dead. Spoiler alert, dad dies in the season two. But dad's dead. <laughs> I, I have all of this grief. I have all of this anger. I have all of this emotion that I don't know what to do with. So what I can do is actually rebuild the car, which is what he does. And so he restores it completely. It's beautiful. It's pristine. And in the process of still working through his grief, he realizes that he is not handling that death well, because his father was his hero. His father was the person he looked up to and wanted to emulate more than anybody. And there's this perfect, beautiful emotional scene where he takes a crowbar to the car and he crashes through the windows and he breaks open the trunk, which is inside the trunk is where they keep all of their hunting gear. And when I watched that again, after learning more about their character and their relationship, I realized that, of course, Dean, who is broken on the inside and had tried to rebuild this relationship with his father and failed because his father was dead, would take out his emotions on the car that represents his father, represents his security, specifically on the part of the car that represented the hunting life that he feels had shaped and defined him as a, as a person. And 
it's a great scene all by itself and it works perfect for the story. But when I, you start looking at it through that lens of symbolically what it means and what it says about his internal character and his internal growth, it, it is one of my favorite scenes of the whole show. And Dean, even beyond the car, he wears his dad's leather jacket and he has a certain amulet that he wears that his brother gave him and he has a, listens to his dad's music. And so much of Dean's external appearance comes from other people. And you see very clearly that he has built a wall around his true self because he's been trying to be like his dad and like his brother. And he's wearing and presenting to the world things that he thinks represent his father and his brother, but that don't truly represent his inner self. Only we get to see that as we watch the show. You're making me want to rewatch the show. <laughs> that was awesome. I feel like it's important to say here that a lot of times things like this aren't something you pick up the first time you yeah. read or watch something. A lot of the times it adds value to rewatching or rereading. And I totally stole that from Kristen because she wrote that in the outline. So <laughs> I did to Kristen. For well, it, honestly, it wasn't until we brought up this topic anyway that I thought back to my favorite series, which is, of course, the Winners Trilogy. And I was like, wait, this works perfectly there, too. There's a great Horcrux principle happening there with Kestrel's Dagger. And I've read that series probably three or four times. And it wasn't until this week that <laughs> I, I finally put all the pieces together that whoever has Kestrel's daggers, whose power she's in. And so when she loses her dagger at the end, because her true love throws it away, they're having like a very serious fallout. And then it's gone forever and something horrible happens to Kestrel. And in a lot of ways she has to rebuild. And then she gets a new dagger made and she's a new person. And yeah, the reread value is so high when you have something like this or rewatch if it's a TV show. Mm-hmm. There is some other examples I thought of that are a little bit easier to pull out. Like a classic one is a wedding ring in a book where it represents the relationship with the people involved. Like if a woman who is struggling in her marriage has a wedding ring that is tarnished or dirty or messed up and then she cleans it up and then it represents her relationship with her spouse that she's cleaning yeah. up or then she loses it or it gets stolen. Like there are just lots of really, really easy ways to add this in. And then there's also really complicated ways that you probably won't do until you're like rewriting and really thinking deep. (laughs) For the listeners who really want to dig deep into this principle, I took a class from Rosalind Eves one time where she talked about the objective correlative. And that's, that's also kind of what we're talking about. So if anybody wants to do a little bit more research and dig deep into the objective correlative that's powerful powerful tool to layer in symbolism layer in meaning layer in relationships into your story that usually like we talked about you only find on a second or third read or a second or third watch but instinctively as readers we know something is working in the story the first time through because the author has done their homework and has layered those elements in for us to discover as we return to the story. Mm-hmm. That's probably like the official name. I, mean, I know I was going to say her title is much more academic. <laughs> Rosalind is very academic. I love her. The, the Horcrux <laughs> principle is way better. I actually like that better. I, I will probably use that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. I just slightly narrow our definition too, I think, because yeah, the ejective correlative applies to a little bit more. But did you want to add anything, Cameron? Oh, geez. All my examples feel a little shallow next to those ones. <laughs> I'll throw out a couple little quick. So this is on a much smaller scale, but in the parts of the Caribbean movies, you know, Jack always has his hat. Yeah. And he makes a point that he's not going to go anywhere without his hat. And then we can debate whether or not Dead Man's Chest is a good movie, but I liked the moment when his hat gets blown off, but he tells the crew to leave it because we need to run. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of, I, I thought it was a great, okay, this, this is actually serious. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
That is a good one. Speaking of the hat, it's one of my favorite introductions of a character ever in the very first Pirates of the Caribbean where we open on mm. Jack Sparrow and he is majestic and he's amazing in the wind. <laughs> and then we pull back and we realize that he's standing on a sinking ship and he... That's not even a ship. It's like a dinghy. <laughs> yeah, a rowboat. But even still, he is so perfect that he can just step right off the sinking boat right onto the deck and he never he doesn't even get his hat wet he just nothing can phase this man it's such a perfect promise for the rest of the movie too because that's exactly how he rolls through the whole like the very last second he rescues himself and he looks composed the whole time yeah okay so let's talk a little bit about why we would want to use the horcrux principle in our books we've already said that it adds a whole lot to reread value Mm -hmm. But one thing that I think is really important is um, it allows you to communicate to your reader something that's going on inside your character, like their emotional state or their thoughts or just the relationship with the characters around them without explicitly stating it in like the interiority of the character. You don't have to have the words on the page because like with the wedding wedding ring example, if you already are keyed into the idea that that represents the relationship, as soon as somebody loses it, you're like, something's happening. You know, you already know without the the author having to say explicitly something bad happened. Yeah, or like in the Raven cycle, specifically the Dream Thieves, Ronan has a ton of inner hate and a lot of resentment and a lot of really messy emotions happening. And they don't get explicitly named for a while because Ronan doesn't have the capacity to put them to words. But we see horrible, weird things happening with the magic of the book, which is all tied really closely to Ronan. And so it gives us a chance to see how this character who can't really express himself would express himself if he could, which I think is really a useful skill to have. It can be a great way to get a lot of... Not necessarily complicated, but like deep meaning information across, and you can show it without having to tell a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, a moment that comes to my mind is, you know, in The Last Airbender, when Iroh and Zuko have been branded traitors and they cut their top knots off. Mm-hmm. It's a great physical representation of there's no going back. I mean, there's literally their hair is gone. Mm-hmm. So. The symbols of what they were before, they yeah. cut them off. Do they, you... don't, they don't have to stand there and say, we can't go back, so I'm cutting my hair off. They just do it, and yeah. the scene works. Yeah. One of the things that I really like layering in for symbolism or this uh, Horcrux principle where you imbue character development or symbolism into other items, into physical objects from the story, is it then gives you an entire vocabulary to talk about and your adjectives and your verbs and your nouns, the way you talk about things that relate to that family. So for example, in your wedding ring analogy, I would want a lot of language that would be circular or that would be gold and use words to describe rings and jewelry and metal, the brilliance of it or the brightness of it, and use those adjectives to describe other things. And that is a way to use language to further the symbol, even if the symbol's not on the page. And all of a sudden your story and your your scene feels complete, like it's a whole part of something bigger because you've specifically chosen words to evoke the symbol, even if it's not in the scene. It's hard to do, but it's a great, great goal to strive for. That is a great point. I mean, I feel like a lot of newer authors struggle a whole lot with finding the voice of a specific Mm -hmm. character or of a book that they're writing. And that's like a really good place to start because voice is so much about the vocabulary Mm -hmm. use and the things that they key into. So if you're focusing on a symbol and then you start doing exactly what Lisa is talking about, I think that's... It really strengthens the writing. Mm -hmm. Another thing that I wanted to mention is I've used this in my work 
in order to remind people that there are characters that are not currently on the page, but who are very important to the story. Like in my book, Last Star Burning, the main character's best friend she has to leave behind. And almost immediately she picks something up that she keeps that reminds you of him through the rest of the book, even though he is not in the book until like the last couple of chapters. So it's a way that the way that she treats the thing allows you to know how she's thinking about this friend. But it also reminds the reader that the friend still exists. Freaking Tyga. <laughs> <laughs> hey, spoilers. <laughs> Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about how to utilize this tool. The first thing I would say, I mean, I know that I named this principle after a very on-the-nose thing, but I do think that it loses some of its power when it's really, really on the nose. For instance, if at some point in Supernatural, Sam were to be like, hey, isn't it funny how your car's just like you, Dean? I, I think that would take away a little bit from it. So unless it's like there's an explicit in-universe reason for things to be the way that they are, like with the Horcrux, I would try not to spell it out and assume your readers get it. Mm -hmm. I feel like a really important part of this is that your readers need to be able to read the story without understanding. And then if they do understand later, then great. <laughs> You already gave us some really good tips on on extending the metaphor by using language. Yeah. Do you have any other thoughts about how people can choose their metaphors or how they can integrate this principle into their writing? Well, I think especially for new writers and even experienced writers, they probably already have something in the story that is on the brink of being a symbol or being this Horcrux principle that we've been talking about. If they can just identify it and then focus on it, a lot of that hard work will already be done. So I, I want your listeners to make sure that they know that they're probably already doing this instinctively and that this isn't going to be some big, giant, stressful thing they've got to learn. They just have to be aware of what they're already doing. And the best way to do that is to start looking at the objects and the items in your story that seem to keep coming up. I had a friend who had this experience and she's like, I keep looking for the symbol in my story. And after the seventh time my character drank coffee from her mug, I realized that was it. And that was it. <laughs> <laughs> and she didn't have to invent something. She already had it. She just had to recognize it as the author. And then she could be deliberate about how she used it, how she addressed it how she presented it, how she described it. And then all of a sudden it looks like you planned it from the beginning, even if you accidentally stumbled into it. That's the gift of revisions. You can look so smart, right? <laughs> <laughs> Stephen King says something very similar to that in his book, his uh, memoir on writing, where he says he goes back through after he's already finished the book because he's a seat of the pants writer and he writes the whole thing and then goes back and edits, at least according to that book he is. <laughs> and in his first revision, he'll go through and find things that come up a lot. And then he turns that into a theme or into symbols. And so it's something that you probably don't need to worry about on your first write. It's something that definitely happens and is strengthened during revisions. <laughs> Unless you're amazing somehow. <laughs> okay. Well, then we're going to move on to the second part of our podcast where we give a first chapter critique to a listener. We do try to be non-prescriptive, at least us podcasters will be. Lisa, you can be as prescriptive as you like. Because Excellent. you're an editor, and that's your job. It's my job. Um, <laughs> if you listeners would like to check out the text of this submission and see all of our notes, go to our website, litservicepodcast.wixsite.com slash litnation. And if you would like a first chapter critique from us, you can find our submission guidelines there as well. So this submission is about a young lady who has played a prank that seems to have gone too far. And her father, in order to rein her in, has told her she has to let this old annoying dude court her. What do we like about this chapter? 
on, I think maybe the first page, there's a phrase where someone is describing the main character as an ungovernable vigilante. And it caught my attention immediately. I was really excited to figure out what she'd done and how, how that had ended up in a newspaper. So I thought that was a really interesting hook. It was a good promise. Yeah, sure. it was yeah. a good promise. As they go in with that, I really, really like the premise of girl woman she's 24 she, she's who, an old maid <laughs> <laughs> who who is getting back at this incredibly restrictive society by showing them to be the fools that they are i just think as a premise that that was very intriguing mm-hmm. i really liked that she made us very much dislike the person that she embarrassed who is now embarrassing her back in the newspaper but she did a good job of making it a personal offense that she is going back after. It seems like he, well, in the submission, we find out that he married a girl and then immediately is getting the marriage annulled just because he wanted to get under her dress, I guess, is how you'd say that (laughs) back then. But it seems like he tried to do the same thing with the main character's sister the summer before. Yeah, so it's personal. Mm -hmm. Did you have anything that you particularly liked, Lisa? Yeah, there was actually a lot that I liked about it. There was also a lot I had comments and questions about that you can see on the notes and we can talk about as well. But one of the things as an editor, I was really impressed with how clean copy edit wise the manuscript was. And I know that that may sound like a strange thing to bring up right off the bat because that doesn't have to do with plot, that doesn't have to do with character, doesn't have to do with anything. But because the manuscript itself required so little actual copy editing, it meant I wasn't distracted by typos or commas in the wrong place or bad formatting. And it meant that I could actually fall into the story much, much easier and think about the characters and the relationships and the plot without constantly stopping to go, well, this is wrong and this is spelled wrong. And that just took that barrier away completely and it made reading the story effortless. And that's a really good thing when as an editor, I only have a few minutes to read a handful of pages. You want them to be as effortless as possible. There's one last thing I wanted to throw in. I thought the voice was pretty distinctive. I'm not a linguistic expert, but I thought it it didn't sound, at least how I talk to my friends. Mm -hmm. And given that this is a period piece, I thought that was, I appreciated that. (laughs) That's a good start for Cameron. (laughs) It doesn't sound normal. No, it was good. I liked the voice. (laughs) I'm just trying to imagine like a Regency novel now. It's like, hey, yo, (laughs) can't believe you did that. (laughs) Okay, so if there's anything, if we can move on to things that might need a second look. One of the things that I really wanted to know straight from the beginning was what it was that Emily had done. I feel like we are playing catch up through the whole chapter, at least for me, that instead of knowing what had happened and what the fallout was going to be, we found out that she was scared and we got the fallout and then we got the description of what she had done. And so I spent the first half of the chapter confused. No, I'll agree. And I think the use of vigilante at the beginning got a little confusing because then later on prank is used and those are totally different connotations. So I spent the whole time trying to figure out whether the thing she had done was really, really bad or if it was funny. And yeah, I'll just second what you said. Yeah, I third it. Vigilante was attention grabbing, but I mean, so maybe maybe this is my personal taste clashing with the genre. But when I read Vigilante, I wanted Batman. Um, <laughs> You're no, looking so, for Scott so, Pimper now. Right, so, so, so to be clear, to be clear, I really, like I said, I wasn't lying earlier when I said that I really liked the premise mm-hmm. of this girl who is going to go and pull off these quote unquote pranks. I just think the vigilante maybe made slightly the wrong promise. I actually was okay with vigilante, especially with embarrassing somebody. Like for uh, her, well, it's a big deal. Yeah, so maybe part of the issue is that there's such a gap between the use of the word vigilante that when we actually get the details of what she did that that whole time, at least me, I was building up. I was like, what on earth was she doing? Mm-hmm. And and what she was doing was good. It's just that the, the buildup didn't quite match 
that. Wait, I just want to jump in with a thing that I remember that I like, and that's that I really like that she filled a guy's suitcase or like briefcase with fish at Parliament. I, <laughs> that seems very, very tonally correct for 1700s Parliament in, in Britain. Which, if I could lead off of that, I really like that part as well, but it, it set up a little bit of dissonance for me where, like, this this comes out to me. She is a very competent character if she could pull off filling the, the suitcase <laughs> with fish. This girl could get stuff done. But that clashed a little bit with how much her father was able to steamroll her. I'm not saying that her father winning the argument couldn't or shouldn't be the end of the argument, but it was almost like I was expecting her to blackmail her father to back away. Because, <laughs> like, let's well, what we've shown that this is what not only can't, you know, she can, she's good at this. I have thoughts about that too, but Lisa, Lisa I'm seems sure like she has something desperate <laughs> yeah. she wants to say. <laughs> I have a lot of things to say um, about this, and you can, you can see a lot of them on the notes. Part of what I kind of want to walk you through a little bit, especially if people are going to be listening to this and looking at the notes at the same time, is sort of my general approach when I work on projects like this is I always read it first through just like as reader Lisa, like how do I react and what do I think and where's the story and where's the character? And then when I go back through a second time, then I start noting where my questions are and where exactly I'm feeling certain things because I think that helps an author to know exactly like this right here, this sentence, this word, this is where I had a strong reaction, good or bad, so that they can say, oh, this is either something I definitely need to change or this is something I definitely want to keep because this is the moment where I elicit a reaction from somebody. So when you look at my notes on this first chapter, you'll see that a lot of it are comments and questions that I have about Emily's character. In fact, I agree. I force your opinion about uh, the beginning and being a little bit confusing. I One of my very first comments is I think the story starts in the wrong place. We don't want to necessarily start with her coming up the stairs, leaving the ball, coming up the stairs. I think we need to start with her already in the office or already overhearing her parents talking about it. There is a possibility to even introduce this idea of what she's done with the letter and the newspaper earlier because I, like you, felt ungrounded and felt at a loss a little bit about what we were doing. Both times I read the manuscript, I had a really strong reaction to Emily as a character. And surprisingly, it wasn't a really positive reaction. And if that's what the author's going for, then you, you nailed it. But if you wanted me to like Emily and root for her and go along on this journey with her, for me, I think the author missed some key elements for making me understand why Emily was doing what she was doing and what was in it for her. I kept thinking she is risking so much. If this is Regency era England and she's from a wealthy family and she's 24, my goodness, she feels like how she behaves and how she reacts to her father and the fact that she had little to no remorse for what she's done. She's mostly mad that she got caught at it, in part feels very modern, but it also makes me think you kind of don't care about your family. You don't care about your family's reputation because they're suffering from the result of your actions. And you don't seem, that doesn't seem to bother you as a character, Emily. And that makes it hard for me to like you because I want to like the family. And I, I was kind of rooting for the dad in that scene. I'm like, you go dad, you've got all the good points. You're making all the smart things. <laughs> Like, you tell her what's good, what's what. And so I would like to see the author try to make Emily a little bit more likable, help us understand a little bit more about why she's doing what she's doing, what's her 
personal benefit for withholding secrets or playing these pranks or filling a suitcase full of fish and sending it to Parliament. I think that would go a long way in helping me get behind Emily as a character and feel like, yes, this is somebody I want to spend a whole book with. Yeah, I agree, actually. The, I think my biggest issue was Emily and not really being able to get a bead on, on what it is she wanted or why she was doing it. Because I was all for like vigilante, let's fix society or whatever, but yeah. it didn't seem like she was very committed to that because she immediately yeah. was like, oh... I guess I won't do this anymore. So she's not defending herself. Exactly. And so I wasn't really sure why she was doing it in the first place. And at the same time, yes, if it's just going to hurt your family, then why are you doing this? I think it's mostly just missing interiority. For instance, when she first tries protesting when her mom is speaking, it would have been really helpful to know what she was going to say and why she decides not to say it. Small moments like that would really help to understand what's going on in her brain. I almost wonder if maybe like the scale of the pranks isn't maybe a little too much. Because if you'll you'll, you'll pardon the pun, I feel like the suitcase full of fish, as awesome as it is, jumps the shark a little bit. Uh. (laughs) I'll allow it. I'll give give that to you. Like, well, so I wonder, it's like how how powerful and wealthy is her family that they exist at all after that happened, right? But it depends right. on if they know if they know who did it. Well, Parliament was kind of wild. Like, it was a lot of men shouting at each other. And it still is. Isn't yeah. It? <laughs> well, my point being, though, is that if, like, even, even after all the things she's done, supposedly, by the dad's estimation, by the end of the conversation, no, this marriage to a super wealthy, super important guy is still going to happen despite the things she... So I'm wondering, like, this is one of the things that didn't come up. It's like, what is what is her family bringing to the table yeah. that makes up for everything mm-hmm. that she's done? Why is she still even a contender? If I could piggyback on that a little bit, for Regency England, if Emily marrying Lord Suffolk was a step up in class... Like if Lord Suffolk comes from a more powerful family or has a bigger reputation or is more wealthy, then for sure Emily's family would do nothing to jeopardize the possibility of that because that would elevate their whole family in status, in wealth, in reputation. And on the flip side, if Emily's family is already a high status high-class, wealthy, well-known family, it would only take a whisper of a scandal to bring them to their knees. And a suitcase full of fish would do it. Having Lucy perhaps be have an inappropriate encounter with Lord Richmond would do it. Even a hint of it would do it. And that's part of what didn't quite ring true for me in this particular chapter is that Emily felt so flippant about the scandal and the reputation and the fallout. And it was life and death in that time period for those families. And more than just your personal happiness was at stake. So much money was on the line, so much power and property was on the line and to have Emily be like yeah I don't care I'm gonna marry whoever I want I'm thinking sweetheart you are the oldest girl in this Mm -hmm. family apparently it's on you to make a good match you have that's your job and you're gonna just brush that off didn't quite sit right with me Okay, so I think we are out of time, but we do have more notes that you can read on our website. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Lisa. It was so great to have you. Thanks for inviting me. This was great fun to talk about books and story and symbols. All my favorite things. And supernatural. (laughs) Yes. Yes. But I'll talk about that Um, at the drop of a hat, so. Yeah. (laughs) 
Okay. Thanks also go to Jason Akanaka, who does our sound design, and Aaron Lee, our intern. You can listen to this show wherever you get your podcasts, including Spotify. Thank you to whoever alerted us to the fact that they couldn't find our podcast on Spotify. It should be there now. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us ratings and reviews and share with your writer friends. If you want to ask us questions or tell us we're awesome or heckle us terribly, you can find us on Twitter, Outlet Service, or on Facebook and Instagram as Outlet Service Podcast, or you can email us at litservicepodcast at gmail.com. Lit Service is brought to you by Writer's Clearinghouse. Writer's Clearinghouse empowers authors and agents by providing low-cost professional evaluations of entire manuscripts that tell you exactly where your manuscript stands and what you can do to improve it. To learn more, visit www.writersch.com. Listeners of Lit Service will receive 20% off an evaluation by using the code LITSERVICE20 at purchase. For Lit Service, thanks for listening, and we will see you in two weeks.